0: Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.
1: From Texas Public Radio, this is Texas Matters, a weekly radio news magazine that looks at the issues, events, and people in the Lone Star State. Today on Texas Matters is Texas an ultra-violent state? Why certain types of violence are more common in Texas than in other parts of the industrialized world. This is Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio. I'm David Martin Davies. Turn on the nightly local news and you'll likely witness the frequent if-it-bleeds-it-leads montage of mass shootings, armed robberies, violent attacks, standoffs, and law enforcement showdowns. It's no wonder that the vast majority of people think that we're living in a hyper-violent age, when just the opposite is true. Statistics tell us that we are less likely to be the victim of a violent crime now than in the past. It's just that social media and the old-school news media are incentivized to share and broadcast the latest caught-on-camera home invasion shootouts, thanks to the easily attainable graphic images from the video cameras everywhere world that we live in. But in Texas, you are more likely to be pulled into a violent event than in other parts of the industrialized world. And why is that? According to the editors of the new book, Steeped in a Culture of Violence, Murder, Racial Injustice, and Other Violent Crimes in Texas, 1965 to 2020, Texas has a thing for violence. The state's history is slathered in brutality and bloodshed, and this could set the stage for a set of values, beliefs, and culture, and expectations that problems should be solved with a punch in the face or the squeeze of a trigger. Understanding the roots and underlying causes and context of Texas violence is necessary before we can begin to address how to break the cycle. I spoke with the two editors of Steeped in a Culture of Violence, Brandon Jen, a professor of history at Florida Southwestern State College, and Kenneth Howell, a professor of history at Blinn College in Brenham, Texas.
0: Yeah, uh, this was an issue I've always been interested in. I'm a historian of crime, violence, and criminal justice, um, and I've always been really fascinated by violence. Um, the rises, the declines of it. Um, But this really came to the forefront of my thinking really in the like 2016, 2017 era, um, especially in the buildup to the, to the uh, 2016 election. Um, And the way that I heard people talking about violence in the United States is you would think that this was the most violent period in American history ever. Um, And it, in certain ways, it kind of felt like that, especially when you think about school shootings and, and mass violence like that. Um, But I knew from my research that this was one of the safest and least lethal periods in world history and American history. Uh, So that was something I really wanted to explore, um, this kind of seeming disconnect between what is happening on the ground um, in terms of rates of violence and their sustained decline from the 1990s through the late 2010s. Um, And then the way that we think about and talk about violence. And so that was one of the reasons I was originally drawn to this, this idea, um, and this, this idea of an edited volume. Um, and then I reached out to, um, my friend and colleague Ken, uh, who knows a lot about Texas history and has done a lot of these edited volumes. And so I really wanted to just kind of pull him in so we could have his, his expertise in that, that arena. So, Ken, why
1: Texas? Uh, you could have done this about any other state, I guess, but Texas, is it because of the allure of Texas or is there really something extra violent, ultra violent about Texas?
2: When Brandon first approached me with this idea, that we were looking at Texas because Texas is claimed to have this culture of violence that would, that everywhere outside of Texas, they seem to look at Texas as, well, they're just more violent than any place else in the country. And so, and it must be because they just have this culture of violence that existed from their very origins. And so, I think, with my familiarity with Texas and Brandon's familiarity with Texas, it was natural for us to look at this state and just to see if that was true. If there really was this, you know, if if the state was founded upon violence and the culture was created that was associated with violence, and then if that continued on into the modern era. And so I think that's uh, how we've come to look at just Texas. Texas, you know, you say, okay,
1: ultra-violent, you know, deadly state, and I have to immediately just go to, well, yeah, because of all the guns that we have. Ease of access, availability of means would, I would think, would turn a state more violent than it otherwise would.
0: Yeah, I guess I can take a quick stab at this. Ken, Ken might disagree with me a little bit. Um, in in his, his article on, on mass violence, uh, he engages with that question a little bit and kind of creates this distinction between a gun culture and a culture of violence. And I think, yeah, the the easy availability of, of guns makes violence much more lethal. Um, and it makes quick, impulsive reactions to things um, that make us upset and frustrated much more lethal, um, and I and I think maybe that's where the gun enters into all of this. Uh, people around the world are impulsive in a lot of ways. We all get frustrated and mad about different things. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem like there's something peculiar about about Texas, the South, the United States, kind of writ large as as perhaps the the only kind of Western country that still has pretty exaggeratedly high rates of of homicide and lethal violence and non lethal violence. Um and and I think a lot of that has to do with the availability of weapons, um, lethal weapons. Um, but again, that that impulse. and I think we kind of had have an interesting idea about violence. We tend to think that like the biggest threat to our lives is is that serial killer that exists out in the shadows. and so we lock our doors at night, um, because we're supposed to be safeguarded from from those those scary people that we don't know, but we feel like they're out there. But in reality, uh, and I always tell my students this and maybe too many of my friends at dinner parties. If if I was was killed, um, the police would immediately look at my wife, the person I spend the most time with. Um, and the reality is most people who are killed are killed by people they know, killed by people who look like them and killed by people that they spend the most time with. Um, and so I think that that kind of plays into it as well. We're around people uh, a lot. And in these interactions, sometimes you get get. Uh, upset, frustrated, and um, unfortunately, in all too many cases, people reach for, for a weapon that that will ultimately um, result in a lethal act of violence.
1: So, Kenneth, how the idea that a gun culture doesn't necessarily equal a a violent culture, tell us more.
2: Well, I think one of the things that was surprising to me in this study was that, and I looked at mass shootings, mass shootings tended to run just counter to the rest of the crime statistics that we were looking at. So in the 70s, 80s, even early 90s, when crime rates were high, you had the lo- the the uh, lowest uh, levels of mass shootings in the state. And then as we move and the crime rate begins to drop in the 90s and continues into the 2000s up to the time this study was was published, which we have noticed maybe there's a certain change here around 2019, but at least the time that we were doing research, the statistics showed that, it, as Brandon said, it the safest time to live in Texas in the modern era, mass shootings were all arrives. So it's easy to say, well, it's just the availability of guns. I think, though, that's the more simplistic way to look at it, because that's the most easiest uh, uh, aspect to look at mass shootings and even violence. It's much more difficult to start questioning how do other things factor in? How does mental health, how does economic issues, domestic violence, political, racial, economic divisions, how do those things also contribute to the violence including in mass shootings, was more um, horrific of the violence that we looked at.
1: So you do look at it in this book. You break it down kind of according to those categories, looking at domestic violence, racial violence, mass shootings, and also the culture of violence that we have in Texas. Uh, Brandon, uh, Texas was a frontier state, settled through the six-shooter, I guess. Was the fact that this was for a no-man's land, uh, the outlaws and you know, gunfights in the streets, does that still impact us today?
0: You know, I think all, all of that, historical cultural development certainly plays into it. And we do, I think, a pretty nice job in the introduction of kind of explaining the long history of violence in Texas. And I think this is the the important um thing our book really contributes. This isn't just a recounting of a bunch of violent acts that happened in Texas history um, or from nineteen sixty five to the present. Instead, this is this this is the look at the ways in which um violence culturally, politically, um, was not necessarily discouraged, and in some case promoted as as an acceptable behavior, um, or at least not a behavior that would get you in a whole lot of trouble. Um, and so I think that's kind of bound up in a lot of the different avenues of violence that the, the different authors looked at. Um, I think if you were to poll most people, um, you say, is 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 violence something you support? Most people would probably say no. Uh, but once you start to break it down, like, okay, well, what if someone breaks into your house? Are, are, are you allowed to, to shoot that person, right? And people, well, you know, maybe in under certain circumstances. And so those were kind of the elements that, that we wanted to take a look at is in, 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 in these different arenas, if it's, if it's violence against minority groups, if it's violence against LGBTQ people, violence against women and domestic violence and mass shootings and violence in prisons and gang violence and all these different ab, uh, arenas, Um, How how does Texan culture respond to that? And so I think there's there's this kind of historical hold over. I think I think perhaps the culture of violence was most robust um, in that late 19th, early 20th century. This is after emancipation and the Civil War and the era of feuds in Texas and um, the presence of formal institutions of criminal justice are there, but they're they're not as widespread as they as they are today. So they're kind of coming into their their more modern development. Uh, and so I think there's there's certainly a hold over to that. Um, and all of our authors identified that that a culture of violence existed in these different arenas, except for mass shootings. Um, and they said, even though it has been tamped down over the course of you know the last 20, 30 years, uh, there's still elements of it that remain. And so I think one of the really interesting things that that our scholars engage with at the ends of, of, of most of their chapters is they say, look, we've come a long way, but there's still elements that that within our society writ large that, that do support these these kinds of acts of violence, or at least don't think they're as problematic um, as maybe we would all like to think they are. And so what happens when violence starts to increase? As we're seeing now over the last you know three, four years, rates of violence have gone up. Um, and so even though culture can be tamed and shaped and, and, and morphed, and especially a culture of violence, it's not a foregone conclusion that, you know, we've kind of won and this massive cultural shift will never shift the opposite direction and begin to embrace these things that are seemingly unthinkable uh, today. And so I think that's where that that kind of historical culture kind of leads into um, violence and the support or opposition to it today.
2: I, I might interject just a little bit too. You know, one, one of the purposes for our book, and, and I don't know if we mentioned this, but this is kind of a first foray into looking at this topic, really, um, in Texas for sure. But uh, we're probably going to bring up is uh, more questions than we are answers. I would, right. I think Brandon would agree with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
2: we are certainly hoping that this isn't looked at as a final word on this. More like it's the initial. Co- uh, Part of the conversation, particularly with mass shootings, because there's more questions that I have about mass shootings, you know, than than I have answers at this point in time. And I hope people will look at this book and will pick it up and and pursue these different um, uh, types of violence and will further research them.
1: But it does seem like, and you lay it out in the book, that Texas myth and history. Has a, it, it creates a fertile ground for the attitudes, values, beliefs, behavioral traits that can be used to justify violence, whether for settling old scores or correcting wrongs, how Texas was created. And I'm thinking of, and it's not mentioned in the book, but the 1840 San Antonio Council House Massacre when the city of San Antonio, just a little tiny Villita in, in in texas barely settled and they invite the comanche to come in for a parley and they commenced a massacre against the comanche and it is brutal and uh, takes house to house fighting all through the, the little town and it's still remembered today created the city in a way and that that has some residents, i would imagine
0: yeah, and, and that's kind of one of the points we were trying to bring up with the book, too, especially when you look at the past, like the glorification of, you know, the Confederacy and the Alamo and the Texas Revolution and all these these different ways where, you know, heroic men stood up for what they thought was right and they used violence to achieve certain ends. Some of that is obviously in, in, in war, which I guess comes to be expected. Um, but even if you look at, at Native societies, you know, pre-contact, success on the battlefield and strength and courage and, and and the use of violence is something that is is valued in those societies or was valued in those societies at the time. Uh, if you look at the antebellum South and Texas was a part of that, the the ability by white men to demonstrate violent mastery over their subordinates was something that helped them accrue social status um, and, and and honor. Um, defending one's family in these feuds, we, we delve into in the introduction, these, these feuds that kind of took place in Texas in the late 19th and, and a little into the early 20th century. And, you know, these, these are strong family and kinship networks and friendship networks that, um, per- perceive a wrong committed by them, by another group. And sometimes these acts of violence against each other act, uh, occur for, for years, um, on end. And so I think that there's certainly an element at, at play here in Texas and the South and in some cases the United States writ large of kind of glorifying, glamorizing violence as, as heroic, important, and kind of a thing that can be used as social capital, a political capital. But I think some important changes take place in the United States and the South and in Texas in particular in the 20th century. And that is, you know, we kind of move away from that more frontier mentality, I guess, if you want to call it that. Um, and and the reliance on, on on honor and violence as a means of kind of showcasing masculinity tends to fall by the wayside a little bit. Not not as aggressively as it does in, in the north or maybe the Midwest, um, but it certainly occurs here too. As Southerners and Texans begin to give up that that right to kind of defend themselves and impose their will and and um, right perceived wrongs to law enforcement right um like if 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 something bad was to happen to me now my first instinct wouldn't be like let me go pick up my gun and, and settle this score uh it'd be like well i better call the cops and let them deal with it and i think that's that's something uh that scholars have identified across the world that as state institutions become more robust more responsive to um the needs and demands of their residents um reliance on on violence and honor and things of that nature tends to kind of fall by the wayside and so that's something we want to just explore too Um, what happens when, when all of these institutions are in place and yet from the 1960s to the early 1990s, violence increased, right? Even though the state was, was, was strong and robust and, and whatnot. And so we kind of wanted to play around with that element too. What happens when violence comes back, um, in the early part of the 1970s, 80s and into the 1990s, and then how does it decline and how does that culture of violence play into all of that too?
1: There's a classic quote about Texas. That a uh, Texas is paradise for men and dogs, but hell for women and horses. You look at dom- <laughs> you look at domestic violence, uh, intimate partner violence, and as a uh, something that needs to be teased out and looked at as its own thing. Uh, can you tell us more about that, Ken?
2: Well, I think uh, Noah Smithwick is the the one who made that quote. And uh, looking at these, I, I can speak to the general trends, and I know Brandon will be able to add more to this on uh, specific, but uh, generally speaking, we see a decrease in the modern era of all kinds of violence except at certain point in the last decade with the mass shootings. Um. Is Texas more a hell on women in in terms of domestic violence than anywhere else? You know, domestic violence in this country is a significant problem. And I'm not sure that Texas it's more a problem or less a problem than any other state. I don't think Texas is exceptional in that regard. Um Brandon, maybe you might could uh, fill in something there. On then,
0: yeah. I mean, uh, I really have to commend Ashley Baggett, who was the author behind that chapter, for what she did. Intimate partner violence is notoriously a difficult thing to track statistically. Um, often, cases go unreported, and so even if you look at at cases that are reported to law enforcement or something, that's that that that's only a small portion of the overall acts. And so, where I think Texas fits in kind of nicely, and and how Ashley framed it. Is that this is really kind of one of the the centers for organizing by women um against domestic violence and trying to promote awareness about the fact that this is a thing that exists uh which you know it's kind of alarming for us to think about that like people didn't consider this to be a real problem Um, you know, in the 1960s, 70s, and into the 1980s. And so she really foregrounds the role of Texas women in both Texas organizations and in these national organizations that are both um, raising awareness about the issue of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, um, the threat that it poses to women, um, advocating for um, law enforcement to take these acts of violence more seriously. I think if you look at all the chapters, you'll see kind of a common theme among a lot of these is ambivalence by by law enforcement on behalf of law enforcement. And so if you think that the police or the courts or prosecutors won't take this act of violence against you very seriously, you are less likely to report it. And in some cases, you are more likely to try and take matters into your own hands to resolve it. And so, um, again, I can't really speak to whether or not Texas is is, is more violent for women. Uh, And I don't think Ashley Baggett, who again wrote the chapter, makes that case, but she just foregrounded. Texas as this site of activism, both um, obviously statewide and at the local level, but even on the national stage, it becomes a real important central place um, for the push to make violence against women uh, a a crime that law enforcement responds to, the Violence Against Women Act and things of that nature. So I think that's where Texas fits into the story in a really, really robust way.
1: So when we talk about the use of violence and you write, there, there's there's material in the book about Texas and using the death penalty. And um, there's, you know, it, 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 the state itself, in a way, is using violence to rectify what it considers to be a problem by killing people. Is that just a continuation of the thought that, you know, violence is a, can be a solution? It's not always a, a
0: problem, Brandon? Ah, David, I love that question. That that's that's really thoughtful. And even as you were saying that, I was like, man, we could have tried to include a chapter on like a death penalty. Um, you know, I guess at a certain point the publisher is like, this can't be a tome, you know, you gotta kind of winnow it down a little bit. Um, but I I think there's a couple of things at play here. One, yeah, that's a really interesting question. We can use violence to stop violence. Um, and in many ways, that's kind of what undergirds lynching uh right like if we just lynch black people in these really public and gruesome ways they'll stop threatening white women even though they weren't threatening white women in any robust way but that was at least the justification and the argument uh with feuds right um well they they were violent against us let's go kill more of them uh and then that will stop it and so maybe i i i guess if i'm just kind of speaking off the cuff here you could kind of see this as a continuation of that impulse right if we if you kill someone or you you commit a a heinous act and and you're convicted by a jury of your peers uh yeah we'll use violence to to uh, exact retribution i do also think it's important to keep in mind though that i don't know if there's been any like statistical proof that suggests that death penalty is responsible for reductions in violence um i think you'd be very hard pressed to find Again, if most acts of violence are kind of spontaneous and on the spot and not like done by serial killers, very few people are like, God, I was so mad at my wife that one night, I had too much to drink and I was about to do it, but the death penalty. So I don't I I don't want to do that, right? Um, but I think maybe it makes people feel a little bit better, um, that that they have this tool as a potential deterrent, even though it's its deterrent effects are maybe uh not as robust as some proponents of it would have us think.
1: So you brought up lynching, so let's go back to that. Lynching as a form of terrorism against a group uh, in our society, uh, Black people, to remind them that they were essentially powerless and that they didn't have access to the judicial system. So how was that uh, a form of uh, this, the, the violence that Texas was seeped in? Ken?
2: Well, just you know, we have the James Byrd incident, which uh, certainly in the modern era, uh, Is a modern-day lynching
1: Right, that's yeah. the dragging death in Vider, in Texas.
2: Yes, correct. And uh, that made up a central part of the chapter that was on racial violence. And also then, um, I guess there, there's certain uh, hesitation in law enforcement or even maybe profiling factors in. I know that was brought about. In terms of this chapter in in the Houston area, now that's certainly not to uh, disperse the, the police forces and so forth, they have a tough job to do, but that uh, racial profiling could be a factor still, even today, uh, in police work. Uh, in terms of the lynching culture, and that Brandon's written about this up in Northeast Texas and Paris, Texas. He has a, a very fine article in the East Texas uh, Historical Journal. And, and it might be he could shed more light on kind of this lynching culture that uh, Texas was noted for early in its uh, early 20th century, late 19th century period. And how that relates to maybe more of this racial violence we see today. But I think there is a certain stigma that's still there underneath the surface that uh, uh if there is a wrongful death we'd immediately that that's the image we go to i believe today is that image of lynching you know the jesse washington lynching in waco texas which was a horrific ordeal early 20th century to something that, about the lynching culture and make a stronger connection
1: so, where do you see the, the, the resolution or trying to just put this in perspective, knowing that, okay, it's accepted. Texas is steeped in a culture of violence.
0: So, what, Brandon? Yeah, so what? Uh, you know, I just had a bunch of conversations with students where I make them answer this exact same question. <laughs> Um, I think a couple of really fascinating trends. We, we we tend in the scholarship to think that this culture of violence has declined over the 20th century, as I said before, that, that the state becomes more robust and we rely on the state to kind of settle our scores. Um, and, and I think in large part, that is true. Um, I also think it's important to keep in mind that just because the culture of violence kind of recedes a little bit, that doesn't necessarily mean that one, it can't return. And also that that declining rates of violence are a foregone conclusion. Um, you know, from the nineteen sixties to the the early nineteen nineties, violence is increasing when presumably the state is is fairly robust and this culture of violence kind of falling by the wayside. Um, it declines pretty precipitously throughout the nineties and through the twenty teens until the last couple of years and it starts to go up again. Um and- couple of other important takeaways, I think, is that, you know, I think it's important to understand even if the, the broader culture kind of disavows violence, there are still pockets within that culture that do support and promote these kinds of violence. And it doesn't take a whole lot. I think we're kind of seeing some evidence of this in the last couple of years uh, for those cultural supports of violence to be kind of reenacted relatively quickly and become more widely accepted than we previously thought possible. Um, and then the final thing I'll say is, you know, that, Oftentimes, our, our culture shapes our political and, and economic and you know, social institutions. And so I think it's important to kind of study the cultural underpinnings of what's going on in our world if we ever hope to try to change things. Brandon
1: Jin is a professor of history at Florida Southwestern State College. And Kenneth Howell is a professor of history at Blend College in Brenham, Texas. They are the editors of Steeped in a Culture of Violence, Murder, Racial Injustice, and Other Violent Crimes in Texas, 1965 to 2020. is published by Texas A&M University Press. That's it for this edition of Texas Matters. Thanks for listening. I'm David Martin Davies. You can email us at texasmatters at tpr.org. There are past Texas Matters programs on our website at tpr.org, and you can download, rate, and subscribe to us wherever you get cool podcasts. And tune in again next week for another edition of Texas Matters from Texas Public Radio.
0: Support for TPR comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping employers get their people home safely. Preventing workplace accidents protects families and keeps businesses productive. More at TexasMutual.com.